This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Katie Bulls and Fraser Nelson. Well, Fraser, today we saw the latest installation of the ongoing car crash that is the uh, SNP uh, scandal. Talk us through uh, today's developments, which included uh, Colin Beatty, the party's treasurer, coming out and uh, talking about he knew about the um, mobile motorhome. Well, yeah, Colin Beatty has been the treasurer for a great many years and um, he didn't say very much today, but he did say that he had no idea that his party had come into possession of a a motorhome which was somehow parked in the drive of Nicola Sturgeon's 92-year-old mother-in-law. A great big mystery still surrounds this motorhome. I mean, was the mother-in-law a bit more adventurous than her her neighbours had imagined? And also, how could you possibly come to acquire um, something which some estimates reckon it cost about 100 grand? And the treasurer not know about it. Now, by the way, there was a little gap where he wasn't entirely in control of the finances, so it's possible that the motorhome was bought during that gap. But the the plot thickens. And we also had the reappearance of Nicola Sturgeon. Now, she has been um, working from home, as she put it, for, for quite a while. But she came into Holyrood today, where she was met by Scottish um, political reporters. And they were obviously interested to know on her, her comments. You have to do a double take, I think, unless you've been following Scottish politics day by day, because the comments thrown at them now, you don't tend to get in developed democracies. For example, have you ever bought a burner mobile phone? That's what they're all asked now. And she said, no, she hadn't one of those. Although when, when Hamza Youssef was asked that, he had to sort of caveat it and say, well, it depends what you call a burner phone and maybe during the campaign, etc. And she also said she didn't want to answer questions because it was a police investigation. Now, I'm not entirely sure why that precludes her from answering questions. Well, she could have, for example, um, said she thought her husband was innocent. She didn't say that. I guess she says she doesn't want to prejudge the investigation. But still, um, the one question she wasn't asked, that Hamza Youssef is asked, is whether the SNP right now is a criminal organisation. Now, Hamza Youssef is saying that he doesn't believe that it is, the sort of implication being that you never know what's really going on in that party. So the um, the plot thickens, and you wouldn't have thought it's possible for this particular plot to thicken, but it has done. And Katie, there's a Westminster angle to all this, of course, because you have um, Stephen Flynn and Ian Blackford, the current and former leaders of the party's Westminster group, both putting out accounts which are conflicting with each other, shall we say, about when they were told about the party's auditors um, cutting ties with the party back in September. And obviously this is important because upcoming is the deadline to file accounts by the end of May to claim short money, opposition money, party funding. I mean, is this, talk us through the dangers of this in both Westminster and Holyrood. Yeah, I think we're now seeing, as you say, the drama in the Scottish Parliament spill out into Westminster. And there's signs of this earlier. If you think about when uh, Stephen Flynn first came in, it was after a, you know an originally unsuccessful attempt to oust Ian Blackford. Eventually, there were enough times that they managed to. But Ian Blackford was seen as a Nicola Sturgeon ally. And uh, there was a sense that uh, Lozen, the SNP Westminster group, wanted to be sufficiently different um, and yes, Stephen Flynn would often be very positive about Nicola Sturgeon interviews, but at least they want to have more of their own identity, which I think was seen as an early signs of unhappiness 
particularly Nicola Sturgeon's independence approach. So the fact that she kept saying the general election would be a test on independence, you know, de facto, which worries some in the party, given they think it's going to be more about cost of living. Now, Ian Blackford has, has said that he was given an assurance by Stephen Flynn earlier this month that the Westminster Group had a new auditor in place. Stephen Flynn has denied this is the case. And ultimately, the group in Westminster need to get their own auditors to meet really ahead of that 31st May deadline if they are to receive public money. So it's going to have a significant impact. They can't get around doing this. So that's how you see it spilling out in Westminster. I think speaking to SNP MPs in Parliament, I mean, I think they're pretty despondent, some um, in slight disbelief at how bad things are going. But there is a sense almost it has to get worse before it gets better. So there's quite a few SNP MPs who I think... Do not, do not feel very hopeful about Humza Yusuf and what the party would do under him, would have preferred Kate Forbes, but don't think the party is about to move on this and, and actually are, are, you know, getting ready for almost a, a sense of slow decay. It is interesting, though, that, you know, when you look at some of the recent polling, mm. warnings from pollsters that, yes, the S&P is in you know, a meltdown, but don't yet bank that this is all going to go to Scottish Labour. There's still strong support um, amongst, you know, hardcore S&P supporters for independence and they don't have a party to go to. And Fraser, the other sort of big story really dominating Westminster today is what's happening in Sudan and the evacuation there. I mean, there's been a lot of criticism and some suggestions perhaps that this could resemble, you know, another Kabul evacuation in 2021. But you're more positive about this. Well, I would simply defend um, James cleverly. I mean, it's been said that the Foreign Office was asleep at the wheel. Why didn't we see this was coming? Was this yet again demonstration of an intelligence failure, just like the collapse of Kabul? Now, uh, I am a bit more sympathetic because I think when um, when the collapse of Kabul, the collapse of Saigon, even the Iranian Revolution in 79, these things always took experts by surprise. The collapse of the Soviet Union took people, uh, Sovietologists, um, by surprise. This is one of these funny things about uh, about history that, you know, as Karl Popper said, we can predict eclipses to the nearest microsecond, but we can't really predict revolutions. And this is the case, I, I certainly think, in um, Sudan as well. Until fairly recently, it was thought that the two um, warring generals had basically signed this UN-mediated deal to um, hand over to civilian rule. In fact, they were preparing to fight each other. Now, in retrospect, you can always say that there are things people missed. But I don't think that Britain is any more to blame than the US or the EU, who says one of its officials has been um, shot in this. And there are several private companies who are also desperately trying to get their companies out of Khartoum. So now we see pretty extraordinary scenes there where the US has negotiated a three-day ceasefire, while anybody who wants to leave the city can. Now, it's fast turning into a ghost town. Apparently, there is something like 450, 500 people already dead in the fighting we've had so far. The British army was um, sent in to help extract um, diplomats from there, but there's still 4,000 Brits, 16,000 Americans. Um, you've got some um, some talk that they might go to Saudi Arabia. Already, of something like 20,000 people have crossed into Chad, which is itself gripped by pretty um, difficult fighting. And you've seen all sorts of, you know, there aren't that many places to go. I mean, um, it's about a 12 to 20 hour uh, drive quite often the next safest place. And the irony is that Khartoum itself has tended to be 
a place where people would go to when they were fleeing conflict. So this is a, a very fast-moving situation, but I personally would put it down into the fairly large category of fairly seismic events, which weren't predicted by people previously, because there are, there's only so much, really, that even the best intelligence can predict. I mean, Katie, obviously you spent a lot of time talking to Conservative MPs today as well, and, I mean, it doesn't seem to be the same sort of level of emotion or kind of outcry that there was back in August 2021. I mean, does this? how does this register on the scale of, you know, previous Foreign Office um, errors or blunders, shall we say? I think a lot of uh, Tory MPs, but also just, you know, figures who are, of course, interested in what's happening there, are just waiting to see how the government response actually shakes out. So I think there was quite a lot of pessimism yesterday, speaking to, you know, senior Tories with foreign affairs interests. They thought, uh, you know, the government had missed the boat to evacuate British nationals effectively, um, compared it to, you know, countries like France that had managed, managed to, and, th- and there was annoyance there. But yet today, obviously, we have the first flight evacuating British nationals. And I think... To go for the diplomats first, normally it should be, you know, anything diplomats last, you know, get the people out first. But there was a specific reason for that, which was threats to diplomats. And you now have the Prime Minister saying there are many more flights to come. It clearly is a very difficult op- operation geographically in terms of getting to a place where you can. And I think the jury is out at the moment on the government response. I think to Fraser's point about James Cleverly, you can see that there was, you know, there's a, a bid to avoid some of the mistakes of Afghanistan, also just some of the basic political mistakes. So the fact that uh, James Cleverly cut, short, not a holiday, <laughs> but an official visit to fly back, citing Sudan as a reason, is very different to obviously Dominic Raab and the sea being closed and, and that whole row about his holiday. You do have a, a diplomat who can get back in the country because they were on holiday. But I think you can see um, very much an awareness within government and by ministers of the, of the fact that um, Afghanistan did get very messy and there are lots of own goals in that and they, they're trying to avoid that. But these situations are really complicated and clearly some mistakes are still being made. Of course, we'll see how it all pans out. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots. To celebrate the coronation of King Charles III, you can subscribe to The Spectator and get the next 10 weeks for the price of one. Not only that, but we'll also send you a commemorative Spectator mug absolutely free. To claim this very special offer, go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash crown.